Section 33 of The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism by the National Society of Music. Chapter 13, Part 1. Verdi and His Contemporaries. Section 1. One can hardly imagine the art of music being what it is today without Bach or Mozart or Beethoven, without Monteverdi or Gluck or Wagner. It has been said that great men sum up an epoch and inaugurate one. Janus-like, they look at once behind and before, with glances that survey comprehensively all that is past and pierce prophetically the dim mists of the future. Unmistakably, they point the way to the seekers of new paths. Down through the ages rings the echo of their guiding voice in the ears of those who follow. So much is this so that the world has come to measure a man's greatness by the extent of his influence on succeeding generations. The test has been applied to Wagner and stamps him unequivocally as one of the great, but a rigid application of the same test would seem to exclude from the immortal ranks the commanding figure of his distinguished contemporary, Giuseppe Verdi. Yet while it is still perhaps too early to ascertain Verdi's ultimate place in musical history, there are few today who would deny to him the title of great. Undoubtedly, he is the most prominent figure in Italian music since Palestrina. The musical history of his country for half a century is almost exclusively the narrative of his remarkable individual achievement. Nevertheless, when he passed away, leaving to an admiring world a splendid record of artistic accomplishment, there remained on the musical soil of Italy no appreciable traces of his passage. He founded no school. He left no disciples, no imitators. Of all the younger Italians who aspired to inherit his honoured mantle, there is not one in whom we can point to any specific signs of his influence. Even his close friend and collaborator, Boito, was drawn from his side by the compelling magnetism of the creator of Tristan. Some influence, of course, must inevitably have emanated from him, but it was no greater, apparently, than that exercised even by mediocre artistic personalities upon those with whom they come immediately in contact. It is curious to note, in contrast, the influence on the younger Italians of Poncielli, a lesser genius, and one is inclined to wonder why the noblest Roman of them all inspired no one to follow in his footsteps. The reason, however, is not far to seek. Verdi was no innovator, no explorer of fresh fields. He had not the passionate desire that Wagner had for a new and more adequate form of expression. The fierce contempt for conventional limitations so common to genius in all ages was unknown to him. Verdi was temperamentally the most bourgeois of great artists. He was conservative, prudent, practical, and self-contained. The appearance of eccentricity was distasteful to him. He had a proper respect for established traditions and no ambition to overturn them. 
The art forms he inherited appeared to him quite adequate to his purposes, and in the beginning of his career he seems to have had no greater desire than to imitate the dramatic successes of Rossini, Mercadante, and Bellini. His growth was perfectly natural, spontaneous, unconscious. He towered above his predecessors because he was altogether a bigger man, more intelligent, more intense, more sincere, and more vital. He was not conscious of the need for a more logical art form than the Italian opera of his time, and unquestioningly he poured his inspiration into the conventional moulds. But as time went on, his sure dramatic instinct unconsciously shaped these into a vehicle suitable to the expression of his genius. It thus becomes the real mission of Verdi to develop and synthesize into a homogeneous art form the various contradictory musical and dramatic influences to which he fell heir, and having done that, his work was finished, nor was there anything left for another to add. The influences which Verdi inherited were sufficiently complex. The ideals of Gluck and Mozart were strangely diluted by Rossini with the inanities of the concert opera school, of which Sacchini, Paisiello, Iommelli, and Cimarosa were leading exponents. Il Barrieri, it is true, is refreshingly Mozartian, and Tell is infused with the romantic spirit of Weber and Ober, but even these are not entirely free from the vapidity of the Neapolitans. With Rossini's followers, Bellini, Donizetti, and Mercadante, Italian opera shows retrogressions rather than advance, though Norma is obviously inspired by Tell, and La Favorita is not lacking in traces of Meyerbeer. The truth is that Italian opera during the first few decades of the 19th century was suffering from an epidemic of anemia, it was not devoid of spontaneity, of inspiration, of facile grace, but it was languid and lackadaisical. It was like the drooping society belle of the period, with her hot-house pallor, her tight corsets, and fainting spells, and smelling salts. To save it from degenerating into imbecility, there was necessary the advent of an unsophisticated personality, dowered with robust sincerity, with full-blooded force and virility, and fortunately just such a saviour appeared in the person of Giuseppe Verdi. The career of Verdi is in many ways the most remarkable in musical history. None other covers such an extended period of productive activity. None other shows such a very gradual and constant development. None other delayed so long its full fruition. Had Verdi died or stopped writing at the same age as did Mozart, Beethoven, Weber, Schubert, or Schumann, to mention only a few, his name would be to us merely that of a delightful melodist, whose genius reached its fullest expression in Rigoletto and the Traviata. He would rank perhaps with Rossini and Donizetti, certainly not higher, but an age which is usually considered beyond the limit of actual achievement, he gave to the world the crowning masterpieces which as far surpassed the creations of his prime as Tristan and de Meistelsinger surpass Das Liebesverbot and Rinzi. Section 2. Giuseppe Fortunino Verdi was born on October 10, 1813, in the little village of Le Rancol, about three miles from Busseto. 
His parents were Carlo Verde and Luigia Utini, peasants and innkeepers of Laurent Col. Happily, the narrative of Verdi's early years is comparatively free from the wealth of strange and wonderful legends that cluster like barnacles round the childhood of nearly every genius. There was something exceptional, however, in the sympathetic readiness with which the untutored innkeeper encouraged his son's taste for music by the gift of a spinet, and in the eager assiduity with which the child devoted himself to the instrument. In encouraging his son's taste for music, it was the far-fetched dream of Carlo Verdi that the boy might some day become organist of the Church of Laurent Col. At the age of eleven, Verdi justified his father's hopes. Meantime, he went to school at Busseto and subsequently became an office boy in the wholesale grocery house of one Antonio Barezzi. Verezzi was a cultivated man. He played with skill upon the flute, clarinet, French horn, and ophiclid, and he was president of the local Philharmonic Society, which held its meetings and rehearsals at his house. There Verdi's talent was recognized by the conductor Provesi, who after a few years put the young man in his place as conductor of the Philharmonic Society, and frequently used him as his substitute at the organ of the cathedral. Eventually, however, Verdi exhausted the musical possibilities of Busseto, and his loyal friends, Barezzi and Provesi, decided that he should go to Milan. Through the influence of Barezzi, he was awarded one of the bursaries of the Monte di Pietà. And as this was not sufficient to cover all his expenses, the good Barezzi advanced him money out of his own pocket. Verdi arrived in Milan in June 1832, and at once made application in writing for admission as a paying pupil at the conservatory. He also went through what he afterward called a sort of examination. One learns without surprise that he was not admitted. The reason for his rejection is one of those profound academic secrets about which the world is perfectly unconcerned. He was simply advised by Provesi's friend Rolla, a master at the conservatory, to choose a teacher in the town, and accordingly he chose Vincenzo Lavigna. With him, Verdi made rapid progress and gained a valuable practical familiarity with the technique of dramatic composition. From this period date many forgotten compositions, including pianoforte pieces, marches, overtures, serenades, cantatas, a stabat mater, and other efforts. Some of these were written for the Philharmonic Society of Busseto, and some were performed at La Scala, at the benefit concerts for the Pio Instituto Teatrale. Several of them were utilized by Verdi in the scores of his earlier operas. From 1833 to 36, Verdi was Maestro di Musica of Busseto. During that time, he wrote a large amount of church music, besides marches for the Banda, town band, and overtures for the orchestra of the Philharmonic. Except as preparatory exercises, none of these has any particular value. The most important event of those three years was Verdi's marriage to Margarita Barezzi, daughter of the enlightened grocer who so ably deputized Providence in shaping the great composer's career. This marriage seems to have kindled new ambition in Verdi, and as soon as the conditions of his contract with the municipality of Busseto were fulfilled, he returned to Milan, taking with him his wife, two young children, and the completed score of a musical melodrama entitled Oberto, Conti di San Bonifacio, of which he had copied all the parts, both vocal and instrumental, with his own hand. 
Verdi returned to Milan under most promising auspices, having already attracted the favorable notice of some of the leading social and artistic factors of that musical city. A few years before, when he was studying in Milan, there existed a society of rich musical dilettanti called the Societa Philodramatica, which included such exalted personages as Count Renato Borromeo, the Duke Visconti, and Count Pompeo Belgio Gioso, and was directed by a maestro named Massini. The society held weekly artistic meetings in the hall of the Teatro Philodramatico, which it owned, and at the time we speak of was engaged in preparing Haydn's creation for performance. Verdi distinguished himself by conducting the performance of that work in place of the absent maestri. Soon afterward, Count Borromeo commissioned Verdi to write the music for a cantata for voice and orchestra on the occasion of the marriage of some member of his family, and his commission was followed by an invitation to write an opera for the Philodramatic Theatre. The libretto furnished by Massini was altered by Temistocle Solera, a very remarkable young poet with whom Verdi had cultivated a close friendship and became Oberto di San Bonifacio. Section 3. This was the opera with which Verdi landed in Milan in 1838. Massini, unfortunately, was no longer director of the Philodramatic Theatre, but he promised to obtain for Oberto a representation at La Scala. In this he was assured the support of Count Borromeo and other influential members of the Philodramatic, but beyond a few commonplace words of recommendation, as Verdi afterward remarked, the noble gentlemen did not exert themselves. Massini, however, succeeded in making arrangements to have Oberto produced in the spring of 1839. The illness of one of the principal singers set all his plans awry, but Bartolomeo Marelli, who was then impresario of La Scala, was so much impressed with the possibilities of the opera that he decided to put it on at his own expense, agreeing to divide with Verdi whatever price the latter might realize from the sale of the score. Oberto was produced on the 17th of November, 1839, and met with modest success. Morelli then commissioned Verdi to write, within two years, three operas which were to be produced at La Scala or at the Imperial Theatre of Vienna. None of the librettos supplied by Morelli appealed to Verdi, but finally he chose what appeared to him the best of a bad lot. This was the work in the comic vein, called Il Finto Stanislao, and named by Verdi Un Giorno di Regno. It was the supreme irony of fate that set Verdi just then to the composition of a comic opera. Poverty, sickness, and death in rapid succession darkened that period of his life. Between April and June 1840, he lost one after the other, his baby boy, his little girl, and his beloved wife. And he was supposed to write a comic opera. Angiono di Regno naturally did not succeed and feeling thoroughly disheartened by his successive misfortunes, Verdi resolved to abandon a musical career. From this slough of despond, he was finally drawn some months later by the attraction of a libretto written by his friend Solera, which Morelli had succeeded in inducing him to read. It was Nabucco. The opera Nabucco was finished in the fall of 1841, and was produced at La Scala on March 9, 1842. Its success was unprecedented. 
The first performance was attended by scenes of the wildest and most fervent enthusiasm. So unusually vociferous was the demonstration, even for an Italian theatre, that Verdi at first thought the audience was making fun of him. Nabucco, however, was a real sensation. It had dramatic fire and energy, a massiveness of treatment, a richness of orchestral and choral color that were new to the Italians. The chorus of the Scala had to be specially augmented to achieve its magnificent effects. Somewhat crude it was, no doubt, but it possessed life and force, qualities of which the Italian stage was then sorely in need. One is amused at this date to read the complaints of an eminent English critic, Henry Fothergill, Chorley, of the Athenium, to wit, touching its noisiness, its immoderate employment of brass instruments, and its lack of melody. Familiar charges. To the Italians, Nabucco was the ideal of what a tragic music drama should be, and certainly it approached that ideal more nearly than any opera that had appeared in years. The great success of Nabucco placed Verdi at once on an equal footing with Donizetti, Mercadanti, Pacini, Ricci, and the other musical idols of contemporary Italy. The management of La Scala commissioned him to write the opera d'Oblico for the grand season of the carnival, and Morelli gave him a blank contract to sign upon his own terms. Verdi's demands were sufficiently moderate, and within eleven months he had handed to the management of La Scala the completed score of a new opera, Il Lombardi alla prima crociata. With Il Lombardi began Verdi's long and troublesome experience with the Austrian censorship. The time was almost ripe for the political awakening of Lombardo Venetia, and some of the patriotic feeling which Verdi, consciously or unconsciously, expressed in Nabucco, had touched an answering chord in the spirit of the Milanese, which was partly responsible for the enthusiasm with which the opera was received. Such demonstrations were little to the taste of the Austrians, and when Il Lombardi was announced, they were prepared to edit it into complete political innocuousness. Accordingly, in response to an ill-tempered letter from Cardinal Geisruck, Archbishop of Milan, drawing attention to the supposed presence in Il Lombardi of several objectionable and sacrilegious incidents, the director of police, Torresani, notified the management of La Scala that the opera could not be produced without important changes. After much discussion, Torresani finally announced that as he was never a person to cut the wings of a young artist, the opera might go on, provided the words Salve Maria were substituted for Ave Maria. Il Lombardi was produced in February 1843 and met with a reception rivaling that which greeted Nabucco. As in the case of the latter opera, a certain amount of this excitement was political, the audiences reading into many of the passages a patriotic meaning which may or may not have been intended. The chorus, O Signore, Dal Teto Nazio was the signal for a tremendous demonstration similar to that which had been aroused by the words O mia patria, si bella e perduta, in Nabucco. Additional political significance was lent to the occasion by the interference of the police to prevent the repetition of the quintet. In truth, Verdi owed much of his extraordinary success of his early operas to his lucky coincidence with the awakening patriotic and revolutionary sentiment of the Italian people. 
he put into fervent, blood-stirring music the thoughts and aspirations which they dared not as yet express in words and deeds. We cannot believe that he did this altogether unconsciously, for he was much too near the soil and the hearts of the people of Italy not to feel with them and in a measure express them. Indeed, as he acknowledged himself, it was among the common people that his work first met with sympathy and understanding. After the success of Il Lombardi, Verdi was beset with requests for a new work from all the leading opera houses in Italy. He finally made a contract with the Fenice in Venice and chose for his subject Victor Hugo's drama Ernani, from which a mediocre libretto was arranged at his request by a mediocre poet named Francesco Maria Piave. The subject appealed strongly to Verdi and resulted in a score that was a decided advance on Nabucco and Il Lombardi. It brought Verdi again into collision with the Austrian police, who insisted on certain modifications, but in spite of careful censorship, it still furnished an opportunity for patriotic demonstrations on the part of the Venetians, who read a political significance into the chorus. Siridesti il leon di Castiglia under the circumstances, one cannot say to what extent, if any, the artistic appeal of Ernani was responsible for the enthusiasm which greeted its premiere at La Fenice on March 9, 1844. Some of the other Italian cities, notably Florence, received it coolly enough, but on the whole it was very successful in Italy. Abroad the impression it produced was less favorable. It was the first Verdi opera to be given in London, where Lumley opened the season of 1845 with it at Her Majesty's Theatre. The manner of its reception may be described in the words of a contemporary wag, who declared after the performance, Well, the I-don't-knows have it. In Paris it was presented at the Théâtre Italien in January 1846, but owing to the excusably strenuous objections of Victor Hugo, its name was changed to Il Proscritto, and the name of its characters were also altered. Hugo did not admire Piave's version of his drama, neither did it succeed with the Parisian public. Verdi's next effort was I Due Foscari, a long-winded melodrama constructed by Piave, which was produced in 1844 and received without enthusiasm. Its merit is far below that of its three immediate predecessors, nor was its successor, Giovanna d'Arco, of much more value, though it had the advantage of a good poem written by Solera. Giovanna d'Arco was followed respectively by Alcira and Attila, neither of which attained or deserved much success. Great enthusiasm, it is true, marked the reception of Attila in Italy, but it is attributable almost solely to the susceptible patriotic fervor of the people who were aroused to almost frantic demonstrations by such lines as Avrai tu l'universo, resti l'Italia me. In London, Attila attracted to the box office the magnificent sum of forty dollars, though in Paris a fragment of the work produced what was described as a startling effect through the medium of the statuesque Sophie Cruvelli. Yet during all this time, Verdi was advancing, as it were, under cover. His failures were not the result of any decline in his powers. They showed no loss of the vigor and vitality that gave life to Nabucco, I Lombardi, and Ernani. Simply, they were less felicitous, but no less the crude and forceful efforts of a strong man not yet trained to the effective use of his own strength. 
Some of their defects, too, were no doubt due to the poverty of the libretti, for Verdi was essentially a dramatic genius, dependent for inspiration largely upon the situations with which he was supplied. Certainly, the quality of his works seems to vary precisely with the quality of their libretti. Thus Macbeth, an adaptation of Shakespeare's tragedy, made by Piave, proved a distinct advance on its immediate predecessor, Attila, even though Piave did not improve on Shakespeare. It was produced at La Pergola, Florence, on March 14, 1847, with complete success. Like so many other Verdi operas, Macbeth provided an excuse for patriotic demonstrations, and in Venice the Austrian soldiery had to be summoned to quell the riotous and seditious excitement aroused by Palma's singing of the verse La patria tradita, piangendo cen vita, fratelli, gli oppressi corriamo a salvar. Macbeth was followed by I Masnadieri, which was written for the stage of Her Majesty's Theatre in London. It was originally intended that Verdi should write an opera for the English stage on the subject of King Lear, and it is to be regretted that circumstances prevented him from carrying out his project, for he seems to have found a special inspiration in the Shakespearean drama. The libretto of I Masnadieri was written by Andrea Maffei, but that excellent poet had the bad judgment to single out for treatment Die Räuber of Schiller, which had already been shamefully mauled and mangled by other librettists. It was a complete failure in London, where Verdi himself conducted it. It also was a complete failure everywhere else. Notwithstanding this, Verdi was offered the post of chef d'orchestre at Her Majesty's Theatre, but had to refuse because of contract engagements. His next two operas were mere hack-work, Il Corsaro and La Battaglia di Legnano, the latter being a deliberate attempt to dramatize a revolution, rather than to express the feelings that underlie revolutions, was an artistic failure. End of section 33. Read by Sandra, near Montreal, 2021.